question in Psalm 24 and verse 3. He says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? Or who shall stand in his holy place? And that is a question of uttermost importance for the heart of every soul, man or woman. How can we stand in the very place where God is? How can we hope to be there in the heights with the Lord and enjoy his presence where there's fullness of joy and their pleasures forevermore? And, of course, you'll appreciate it wasn't the first time that he asked the question. It is repeated in Psalm 15 and the words of verse 1. But the answer to those questions, men and women, are not only given in those psalms that follow, but essentially the answer in effect is what the Lord is found speaking about in this next beatitude uh, to which we must consider. The words of verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who shall stand in the place where God is? Who shall ascend into that heavenly place? It is they. And only they who are the pure in heart. And again we must consider just like we have done so already with looking at the others. That this is the way to blessing. As the Saviour was to reveal to his disciples. And to the great multitude that were gathered there that day. If you want true lasting happiness. Then it is to be found in these instructions. Of the Lord. And part of that is the pathway of purity or holiness. And so here is something that we must give attention to. I want you to consider the precept here. When we make mention of purity, it's nearly a dirty word today. That doesn't make sense, sure doesn't. But that's a fact what it is. It's something that is the very opposite to the spirit of the age. We might suggest that the lowest depths of sin that are found in the scriptures were the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and our wee country and our towns and our villages and our cities are now again cursed by such depravity of human nature. You consider that every program and film that hopes to have a populace of people watching it, for it to be a success as far as the film industry is concerned, it almost certainly must contain filth. It almost certainly must contain some sort of immorality. If it's not nudity, then it is immoral and illicit relationships. There's always a pushing of the boundaries against common decency. And from that standpoint, there then proceeds every corruption of the human heart imaginable. And that's what the daily diet of many people is. A daily diet because people, you'd be surprised, they dare not miss Coronation Street or East Enders or whatever the rest of them are called. The reality TV reality shows. It permeates every form of society. The double meaning jokes. The yipping of young and old of the immodest dress sense that is highlighted by the television stars. You know the saddest thing of all 
It is that these things in this lifestyle is paraded as by way of entertainment. As a way to have fun and happiness with yourself. But the Lord states in direct opposition to the spirit of this present world and age. Blessed or happy are the pure in heart. If a soul desires to have that happiness which is lasting, then a pure heart is a way to find it. Impurity may be the way of life. Impurity may be found in many churches. But for the blessing, for the happiness of the Lord, then we must have a pure heart. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord? They that have clean hands and a pure heart. And while this is application to the unsaved, of course in the scriptures they remind us that without holiness no man shall see the Lord, see God. The last book, Revelation, reminds us that all impurity will be barred from entering heaven because nothing that defileth shall enter in. And so the benchmark is set down. If we want to see God, then we must have our hearts made pure. We must be saved. We must be redeemed from our iniquity. Only God's people, therefore, can speak of having their hearts pure and their bodies washed. That's what uh, Paul brings out to the believers as he writes in, in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Here's how we draw near to God, with a true heart, with a sincere heart, in full assurance of faith, total dependence, total reliance upon God from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, knowing that cleansing. And this purity of heart is not just some external pharisaical performance that is nothing more than an outward show you notice what the Lord said of the most religious people of the Jews of his day turn over to Matthew chapter 23 (coughs) the Pharisees set set themselves of course above everybody else and they were the the example and all of the rest of it they were the most religious Uh, they were the very epitome of holiness In their own eyes. Well, you look what the Lord says. Verse 25. He says, woe unto you. That's the woe of heaven. It's a chapter actually which is full of woes. But he says, woe unto you. You don't want the Lord to say, woe unto you. Very severe term. But he says, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you make clean outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they're full of extortion and excess. Maybe, maybe we men can't wash the dishes very well. Well, it's just like us to being at the sink and you wash the outside of the plate and the outside of the cup and you fire them in the cupboard. Well, you forgot about washing the inside. That's what the Lord's teaching. He goes on. Look at verse 26. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, that the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward, but are within full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. 
you might ask yourself, what's that all about? Well, some of their strict laws, you see, man-made laws, concerned the graveyard. And the graveyard, of course, they hadn't graves in, in, in terms of where we have, but they were tombs. But the law of the Pharisees stated that you dare not stumble into a tomb. You dare not touch anything that was dead or contained the dead. And so what they did was they got the, the, the paintbrush, the whitewash brush, and they would whiten the sepulchres so as they would stand out that you wouldn't stumble into them. And he says, your life, you're just like them, those sepulchres. They're nice and beautiful on the outside. They're nice and white. But he says, in for inside, there's still dead men's bones. Corruption. And that's the application. Even uh, so, verse 20, even so ye also <coughs> outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. That's what the Lord, how the Lord summed up the Pharisees. They were so careful about the external, lest there will be ceremonially unclean. But the Lord looketh on the heart. And that's the seat of true religion. It's the heart. It's not a mere external show of our, our performance. Any one of us can put on a performance. Many in Christendom today put on a good show. But the Lord looks on the heart. When Job considered how a man could be justified before God, Job chapter 9 and verse 1, he says, Then Job answered and said, verse 2, I know it is of so of a truth, but how should a man be just with God? He was to conclude in verse 30, If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. In other words, I can't wash myself. Even if it was the snow water, it wasn't enough to have external ceremonials, uh, ceremonials or rituals. Those things cannot change the vileness or the rottenness of man's sinful nature. And any religion that teaches such is not of this book, it's not of God. You see, the Lord comes right straight to the heart of the matter, and that is the purity of the heart of man. And that is found... Only in true saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is where the sinner finds their purity. But understand that as believers, this verse also has application to ourselves. For as God's people, we must walk in holiness. There must be that desire to live sanctified, holy lives unto God. Are we seeking to live in that purity of life before God and men? You see, that's the purpose of the Savior's work on the cross. If I can just read to you Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and following. It says, But the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. There's the work of the cross. There's the purpose which he went to the, the, the cross of Calvary. It was that he might redeem us from all iniquity, not just some, and purify unto himself a peculiar people 
a special people, people set apart. There's the precept. What about the purity? <coughs> While our hearts would condemn us, and there's none righteous, no, not one. Something, of course, that the Saviour himself taught in Matthew 15 and 19. He says, for out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. You'll notice he doesn't put the murders first. He doesn't even put fornications first or adulteries first. The first on the list is what any one of us are troubled with. Evil thoughts starts up in the heart, you see. Manifests itself outwardly. The evil thoughts proceed from the heart. And consequently, there are none who can say that they have a heart which is clean. But while man by nature cannot cleanse himself, he cannot purify his own heart, the grace and the mercy of God in salvation can. How can impure hearts be made clean? It is only by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which by faith is savingly applied. We know from John, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, cleanses us from all sin. What can wash away my sin? They often sing it. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. The guilt of sin is removed by the shedding, by the atoning blood that was shed on Calvary's cross. And once we've been justified by the merit of the Saviour's blood, then no devil can ever have our sin resurrected again. God says, thy sins and thine iniquities I will remember no more. Now many of God's people are troubled with that because the devil comes and he seeks to resurrect the sins of the past. But God has pardoned them, men and women, and he's forgotten them. He's put them in the sea of his forgetfulness. Never to be seen again, covered over by the atoning blood of Christ. And as a result, we have hearts which have been made pure. We teach the children, don't we, often by the, the flashcards, you know, from a black heart to a white heart. There's good theology in that. And so that's what we have as adults. We, we, we're no longer uh, that impure heart before God. We have that heart made pure. Now, don't, don't misunderstand me. That doesn't mean that believers don't sin. That, that doesn't believe that Christians don't sin. That doesn't believe, uh, mean that we can be a discouragement to all our believers. And uh, uh, it means today they don't go to church. Sad to say, they look upon our lives and have been discouraged. We need to be careful about that. Our hearts, our lives are not perfect. They're not sinless this side of eternity. They can't be. Because there's the old nature still. Warring against the new man. But you see men and women. While that is the soul. We have been washed. We are clean. And that's what the Lord taught his disciples. In the upper room John 13. You remember how. Uh, after supper he drew aside the garment. And he took a towel and girded himself. Very menial of tasks. And he proceeded to wash the disciples' feet. Judas is gone. 
Jesus has gone out in the night to do his evil work. Or at least within a very short, he's still here by the way, but within this chapter he will be gone. That's why the Lord speaks to the rest of the disciples about great subjects in chapter 14, 15, 16. About heaven, about the Holy Spirit and dwelling the people of God, etc. But Judas is still here. And Peter comes. And Peter remonstrates. He says, Lord, dost thou wash my feet? Verse 7. Jesus answered and said unto him, What I do thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. Peter said unto him, Thou shalt never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. Same Peter saith unto him, He goes to the very extreme, the opposite extreme now. He says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet. But it's clean every whit. What's he mean? He said, Peter, I don't need to wash you all. You're already cleansed. You've already been saved. You're part of me. But I do need to wash your feet. Why? Because you still walk this old world. You're still defiled. We still sin in word, thought, and deed every day. And we need that fresh cleansing of the feet. He says at the end of verse 10, And ye are clean, but not all. Judas wasn't clean. Judas was never saved. Because it goes on to say in verse 11, For he knew who should betray him. Therefore said he, you're not all clean. Do you understand, Peter? I don't need to wash you all, hands and feet. You're already cleansed. You're already washed by faith. But if part of me, you wash the feet. Because that's defiled. The same truth is imparted to the believers before we're engaged in the darkest of sins in the church of Corinth and in my introduction I've mentioned the filth of Sodom and Gomorrah well every known sin was known in the city of Corinth it was known as an immoral place and Paul writes the letters of course to the believers and he writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 Verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor adulterers, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves of mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. See the list there. He starts with the fornicators. He starts with the idolaters. Said he was full of them. He goes on to mention the effeminate. And in verse 11 he says, And such were some of you. Isn't the grace of God amazing, men and women? That in the church of Corinth there were adulterers, former adulterers, they were former sodomites. But he says, Such were some of you, but ye are washed. 
you're sanctified, you're justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Regeneration, you see, set them apart. That was our former life. That was the old filth of sin that they were once engaged in. He says, now you're washed. Now you're sanctified. In God's sight. That's what God's salvation does. The guilt of sin is removed. The power of sin is broken. But purity of heart is not something that just occurs at the point of conversion. It's something which is ongoing in the life and the heart of the true child of God. It's the work that's called sanctification. So don't get that mixed up. Justification is by faith in Christ alone, an act of God's free grace. Once for all at the point of conversion, sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It's ongoing. There's a longing to be more holy and pure before God. Conversely, there's a loathing of sin and of failure. The believer has the longing of McShane. Last year I had an opportunity to be in Dundee and I went to McShane's church and his tombstone. McShane, of course, had a very short ministry, but a, a full ministry. And he said, Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. That's, that's sanctification and practice. Make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. McShane realized that there was an old nature. McShane realized he wasn't sinless. But he says, Lord, make me as holy as a saved sinner can be. They're seeking to follow the exhortation of the, of the Savior. Be ye holy for I am holy. First Peter 1 and 15. Is that our desire as a believer tonight? To live that holy life? To mark, to have the mark of a true child of God that is a pure walk? And the sense of the word pure, it gives the picture of the vine. A vine that is cleaned by pruning. And the avid gardeners are coming up as opposed to that time of year where the work starts again in the gardens. And there's the pruning. And John 15 uh, brings us to that very uh, analogy. I am the true vine, verse 1. My father is a husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. Every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. The pruning knife has to come out. And it comes out that it might bear forth more fruit in our life. We could do well to pray like the psalmist, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew, renew a right spirit within me. That's the purity that the Saviour is speaking about even in uh, this uh, beatitude. Blessed are the pure in heart. He doesn't say pure in works. He doesn't say pure in uh, thought. He doesn't say pure in something else. He goes right to the heart of the matter. It has to be pure in heart. And then you notice just the promise. And what a promise is found in this beatitude. The promise attached. Very plain. Blessed or happy are the pure in heart. For they shall see God. And the sense of the word see is to look with amazement, is to be lost in the wonder of it all. I was so with the disciples on the Mount of Transfiguration, you remember, 
when Moses and, and Elijah was to appear. We read in Matthew 17, verse 3, And behold, stop and think of this, there appeared one to them, Moses and Elias, talking with him. Then answered Peter and said to him, Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee, one for Moses, one for Elias. Such was the amazement of the sight. Peter really doesn't understand what he's asking, but he's asking, Lord, we can make three booths here, we can stay here. And you know, men and women, the same shall be the case when the Lord comes back. Every eye shall be cast upon him. Revelation 1 reminds us every eye shall see him. We'll be lost in the wonder of the glory and the power of his coming. Matthew 24 and verse 30 tells us, And then shall appear the sign of the Son of Man man in heaven, and then shall all the tribes of the earth mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Every eye will be fixed upon Christ. And that is what the promise is here. The way of holiness, the way of purity causes our gaze, causes our eye to be fixed upon God. How can we see God? Without holiness no man shall see him. But for the believer, of course, we see God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. John reminds us in John 1 and and 18, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. We see the Son, we see the Father. We can see him by faith in the word of God that is revealed to us. We see that Christ has satisfied God's justice against our sin. He's seated at God's right hand. We can see that he's the sovereign God. He is in control of all things. He ruleth over all the affairs of men. He's the one who sits on the throne tonight. We see him saving his people. And not only saving them, but we see the Lord sustaining them and keeping his people. We can see God smiting his enemies. And you know, by seeing him, is how we continue. Let me just bring you to that familiar verse in Hebrews chapter 11. Verse 27, great chapter of faith, of course, but verse 27 is referring to Moses. It says, By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured, as seeing him who is invisible. You just stop and think, even over our studies in the life of Moses, you, you consider how he endured, how he kept going. And the attacks that were leveled against them and Pharaoh and all of that in Egypt. And how the children of Israel murmured against them and sought to replace them and sought that they would turn back into Egypt. How did he keep going? He endured as seeing him who is invisible. That's how you and I keep going. Because I tell you men and women you can get very discouraged in the old world of sin which we're living in. All around us is discouragement. All around us is sin, filth, all the rest of it. And how do you have that pure walk? It's seeing him who is invisible. 
we can see God's power at work. And that's what we've come to pray for. We might see him at work in these days and in our congregation. These are all ways in which we see God. But you know the greatest and the fullest fulfillment of that promise is yet future. When as God's people we shall see him as he is. And we shall be like him. We one day shall be in his immediate presence. And look upon him who loved us. And who gave us to Christ. And so the hope of Job is our every hope. With this I close Job 19. Verse 25, you know of course the background of Job. The state he was in. The affliction he was under. The sufferings. He says, for I know that my Redeemer liveth. You could ask the question, how did Job continue? How did he endure? For I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth, and though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. And men and women, Job is one of the oldest books in the Old Testament. But when you read those words, just remember this. He's not speaking about the incarnation of Christ. He's speaking about the second coming of Christ. He says he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. His feet will stand upon Mount Olivet. And he says, oh, these old, this old skin, worms will eat the skin uh, and the body. Yet in my body, yet in my flesh shall I see God because there will be the glorious resurrection. Whom I shall see for myself and mine eyes shall behold. And not another. He's coming with his 10,000 of angels. But Job says, I'll just see him. I'll behold him. Though my reins be consumed within me. You see, one day faith will give way to sight. In the glories of heaven itself. Blessed are the pure in heart. They shall see God. Great, great truth in those little beatitudes. As I said, they're far removed from just a nice piece of poetry, as some uh, loosely termed Christian people will consider them to be. They're full of depth. What we have in Christ, and the order is there. Of course, I've brought it out last time. The first three brings you right to the point of conversion. And then you're feeding up uh, at conversion. You've tasted and seen the Lord is good. You have that hunger and thirst after righteousness. And that what follows that immediately is mercy. And then there's the following on again. There's a desire to walk with God. There's a desire to be pure in heart. It's not just an, a, a, an escape ticket out of hell. This Christian living business, Christianity. It's walking with God. It's that personal experience every day. And that's why the Beatitudes are really, really only for the child of God to understand. And of course, there's great gospel right through them for those who are yet in their sin. May the Lord bless his word. 
Stephen, to our hearts tonight. 